Well, good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. Working our way through chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, uh, the seven churches that received a special message from Jesus towards the end of the first century. We're in church number two today, the church in Smyrna. So uh, God's Word to us this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Father God, may you honor the reading of your words today with hearing, with understanding. And Lord, I pray for encouragement, even with some of those very frightening, very hard words. Lord, I pray for your spirit to be at work among those who are gathered here in this place, in these moments. Be at work in our hearts and our minds, Lord, to speak to us. And as you speak, may we listen. May the the, the weaknesses of the flesh, the distractions of life, and the the things where our our mind normally goes to with just with objections and trivialities and all those things, Lord, I pray for a few moments of clarity to hear from you and to listen. What it is that each of us as individuals, but also we as a body, what is it we need to hear? Father God, for those watching online today and even at a later date, I pray for your spirit to do the same work to break through barriers, to help bring us closer to you. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to speak, to work, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up, and it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, that we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. And I want to give a real special welcome to those who are joining back with us online today. <clears throat> After a little bit of a, a technical issue last week, we are back live streaming today. And uh, the, just so you know, the, the recorded version from last week will be uploaded to, to YouTube uh, hopefully very soon, so it will be available. And then, of course, this live stream will be available as well. And as we're live streaming, I want to say a very special hello to Steve and Betty this morning. Uh, Betty is home recovering from a uh, a little bit of an incident, and uh, we miss you guys, and uh, we look forward to being back, uh, you, you being back with us very soon. So have a great day, guys. All right, as we continue through Revelation, Revelation is at best confusing. At worst, it's frightening. How many times did you, in perhaps younger years, or you've, you've looked up stuff online, and Revelation, this book, has been used to scare the heck out of you? Because the end times are coming, it's going to be bad, there's going to be tribulation and all this horrible, awful stuff is going to be happening, and it is frightening. Revelation is a confusing book. It is a highly symbolic book 
which lends itself to a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation. But we've got to really truly try to read and grasp the meaning of this book. It's the only book in the entire Bible that actually includes a a blessing upon those who read it or hear it and obey it. It's also the only book of the Bible that actually includes a curse for anyone who takes away from it or, or messes it up in some way. So it's a very special book. It's the last book of the Bible. But there's a few just real simple, basic interpretive principles or interpretive truths that will help us not be so intimidated and not get so freaked out over what the book of Revelation has to say. First off, we got to remember, it was a letter. It was a pastoral letter written to seven specific congregations in Western Asia Minor towards the latter half of the first century. Uh, this is modern-day Turkey, and we have a map here. shows where the churches are. begins in Ephesus. Today we're in Smyrna. And if you look and you go up and run, there was actually a route that went from Ephesus all the way up and then back down. So as this letter was given to, to couriers, they would just take it from city to city, from church to church. That was the route that they went. But it was written to seven specific churches that Jesus has something to say. Now, at this time in the world, there were hundreds, if not uh, in the low thousands, of churches already in existence. Most of the churches were very small. They met in homes. They met in, uh, they met in caves. They met in you know, riverbanks. They met in fields, all this kind of thing. Mostly met in homes. And most churches were very small. Just a couple, three families, maybe a, a household or two would get together and they would worship Jesus. So, Out of the hundreds, if not thousands of churches, these seven are special enough to get a word from Jesus, actually the last words of Jesus given specifically to them. Last week, we looked at Ephesus. Today, we're looking at Smyrna. And we've got to remember that anytime we're reading through the entire book of Revelation, that it is written to people in the first century. First century churches, it is applicable to them. It pertains to them first and foremost. So every time we read, we've got to put it through that grid of this was written to people in the first century. It was not just written to Americans in 2023. We like to think it is because there's a lot of weird stuff in there and it's, it's really fun to speculate on. But... Revelation has been used by God and by the Spirit for every generation to speak powerfully to them, to remind them of some very important truths. So it's written to seven churches, seven specific congregations, real-life people living for Jesus and dying for Jesus in the first century. Second of all, the genre, which is the style of writing, the literary style it is, is apocalypse. Uh, Apocalypse is actually a type of genre. Like, you know, we have biography, we have science fiction, we have fiction, all these different genres. Well, apocalypse is a specific genre of writing. It includes certain characteristics, it includes certain themes and things like that, usually dealing with kind of the end of the world and bigger picture or the reality behind the reality kind of thing. The word apocalypse means to remove the veil. So we read Revelation and it's confusing because there's so many, there's symbols and there's weird creatures and there's, there's all these things going on. 
But the book was actually written not to make things more confusing. It was written to make things more simple and more clear. That's the point. That's, what, that's why the symbols, in the first century, the, the people reading Revelation, they would read through and they, they would know exactly who the dragon is and the beast and all this. They would know exactly what John is referring to because they were living through it, that reality. The reality behind the reality, the truth from God's perspective. You see, the real world is not the physical world. The real world is the spiritual realm. The spiritual is what influences the physical. The spiritual is that which is eternal. And it is this spiritual realm where all of these things are happening and taking place that do affect life here in the physical realm. But what we see is not all that there is. There is a story behind the story. There is God's truth. And so John utilizes symbolism to make things more clear, not more confusing. We let it get more confusing when we try so hard to read specific things about our world and our time to superimpose them on the book rather than letting the Scriptures speak. Certain symbols would have been very clear to those in the first century, but some also did need identification. Right there in the first chapter, our first words, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. Churches with angels, and there's lampstands, and there's things like that. Jesus says this to John. Write, therefore, what you've seen. What is now, so that's why we know these were seven specific churches in a real time in history, real people, because that is what is now, end of the first century, and what will take place later. What will take place later is everything from that time until God decides to call a wrap on this whole project known as humanity and, and material time and space, and God brings it to a close. That's what will take place later. But Jesus says here, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. So here's Jesus explaining what this symbolism is. The seven stars you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We talked about this last week. Every church, every congregation that assembles together in the name of Jesus to glorify Jesus, to live for Jesus, to serve Jesus, to orient their lives around Jesus, every congregation that is so aligned with Jesus has an angel assigned to that church. There is an angel of every congregation that means we at Oak Park have one. And, and given how much work we are sometimes, maybe we have two. Um, <clears throat> we might have Angel and we might have Angel Junior. I'm not sure what else is going on. But we have an angel. And then the lampstand is the church. The church is the light of the world. That's what Christians are. And it's the lampstand that's symbolic of the light being broadcast to the world, to the community. The work of the angel and of overseeing us, perhaps protecting us. 
is to guard the light that we continue to give to this community through the preaching of the gospel, through the, 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 the loving, the unlovely, through the helping, the hurting, through the including in community in the name of Jesus, all of those things. So the symbolic language is supposed to help make things more clear. So when we get freaked out by some of the, some of the, the, the symbolic language, don't get too worked up about it. Know that it's, it's been understood and it's, it's probably got a very, uh, a very good application to the real world. So we don't need to get too worked up about it. Lastly, we need to know that the book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a revealing of the roadmap to the end times. The purpose is to gain a greater understanding of who Jesus is and to instill greater devotion to him. We know Jesus through the Gospels when he took on flesh, when God became man and became one of us to live among us, to live sinlessly, to die vicariously for us in our place, a sinless sacrifice for our sin. We know the Jesus who rose from the dead and in that resurrection body, but what about after that? Well, we know that Jesus is reigning from heaven in full of glory and full of righteousness. Revelation gives us more insight to what Jesus is doing now in, in, in sovereign control over the world, bringing every aspect of rebellious humanity under his authority. The ancillary details of events and timelines, other figures, are important only as they point to the sovereignty of Jesus. If you're reading Revelation just to get, just to get ahead of what's coming next for Christians, you're missing the point. Revelation points to Jesus. We should be able to read through sections of Revelation and say, I love Jesus more. I desire to know Jesus more. I have greater devotion to Jesus because of seeing who he truly is. That's the point of Revelation. It's not a, it's not a roadmap to the end of times. It's a reminder of who controls time and is sovereignly at work even in our world, with so much chaos. So those principles will help. But the words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna, these are some tough words. As I said, it was a real church with real people. The city was evidently a crown jewel of the ancient world. Smyrna means the city of myrrh. Myrrh is a valuable perfume. Jews use it as a burial spice. That's part of the, 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 the preparations that the body of Jesus was, uh, was, was given to him uh, at the burial. A very expensive, valuable perfume. It's probably where a lot of the wealth from the city originated. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was also a port city, so it had a lot of trade. It was a very, very wealthy and prosperous city. It referred to itself as the pride of Asia. And it probably only had a population of maybe 75 to 100,000 at this time compared to the 250,000 of Ephesus. But they considered themselves Ephesus' chief rival because Ephesus was wealthy. Smyrna was more wealthy. There were other things as well. Today, it's the city of Izmir, the second largest city in Turkey. Today, more than 3 million people live there. 
Man, I should have I should have done a picture, but I couldn't find a real good one. Actually, in, in, in one of the center sections of the city, they have this whole huge park area cut out. That's the old city. The old Agora, the old marketplace for, for Smyrna is there in the midst. And, and right beside it are these high-rises and these office buildings. You know, and they have these old columns and all the old, all the old uh, destroyed stuff now from so long ago. It's actually it's a pretty cool, pretty cool uh, thing to look at. It's an ancient, ancient city. In Ephesus, their, re- their religion was built around the worship of the goddess Artemis, the fertility goddess. We, we looked at all of that last week. Smyrna had that as well because every city in the ancient world did at that point. But Smyrna's claim to fame was that they were the center not of goddess fertility worship, they were the center of emperor worship. And that just strikes us as really weird because we certainly know our leaders, our political leaders, are not divine. (laughs) They think they are, they act like they are, but we know they're not. But in the ancient world... Yes, they, they did. Smyrna, even before way back, 195 B.C., a temple was built and dedicated to Deo Roma, Rome personified as a goddess to demonstrate the city's loyalty to the empire. They knew which side their bread was buttered, so they kissed up to Rome. As the Roman armies were beginning to conquer everything, Smyrna says, you know, we're going to go on the good side. We're going to build a temple, and it's going to have the worship of, of this, 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 this goddess, this goddess that pictures Rome itself. That's 200 years before Jesus was born. So they were a center of the worship of Rome and eventually the Roman emperor. In AD 26, the city was selected as the site for a temple to Emperor Tiberius the successor to the first Roman emperor, Augustus, who was the Caesar or the the emperor when Jesus was born. Tiberius was the Caesar during Jesus' earthly ministry. Neither Augustus nor Tiberius considered themselves God. They did not consider themselves to be divine. But the Roman Senate actually passed legislation that says our our emperor must must be esteemed as like a god. And so while they themselves did not seek out worship as such, the Roman Senate made sure that the outlying parts of the empire did consider the emperor to be God. And so this temple was built to Tiberius. And then that cult of imperial worship only grew and grew because eventually the emperors did come to see themselves as gods. By the end of the first century, the time that Revelation is written and the the time of these churches, the emperor is Domitian. Domitian was a very harsh, autocratic ruler who claimed deity. He required people address him as master and God. Domitian's reign eventually evolved or devolved into one of terror. Political rivals were assassinated. There was a lot of purging of any kind of political threats during his empire. <laughs> and eventually he was, he was murdered um, by a plot originated by his wife. So that's always real fun. Modern TV and movie dramas have nothing on real life in ancient history. Anyway, so Domitian was off by a, a coup uh, organized in part by his wife. 
But Smyrna was where the emperor was worshipped. And the Roman imperial cult was, was it was not necessarily um, you know, an end-all, be-all. Because the Romans allowed you to worship whatever god you wanted. You just had to worship Caesar or the emperor first. You had to pay homage to the emperor. And then you could worship whatever god you wanted. Christians couldn't do that. Because Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, the emperor is not. The church, we don't know how or when it was founded. It was probably founded part of the Apostle Paul's work during his two years of ministry after Ephesus. Um, That whole region was probably when these churches were planted. And in church history, the city is most well known as the home of Polycarp, one of the best names of the ancient world. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, the last living of Jesus' disciples. And Polycarp is the one who became the bishop of the church in Smyrna. Polycarp was probably alive and probably active in the church at the time of writing in the last half of the first century. But fast forward about 60 years to A.D. 155, Polycarp is 86 years old, and he is publicly executed for being a Christian. When Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna in A.D. 95, and he says, some of you will suffer persecution. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here's what happened to Polycarp. It was February 2nd, probably in the year A.D. 155. The venerable bishop who had fled from the city at the pleading of his congregation was tracked down in his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors, and he asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours. Then, as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant, to recant his allegiance to Jesus. What harm can it do, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater who addressed him. Respect your years. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, swear, and I will release you. Revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar, I have wild beasts. If you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. Call them, Polycarp replied. Since you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Angry Jews and Gentiles then gathered wood for the pile. Polycarp stood by the stake asking not to be fastened to it and prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have come to know you. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but as the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering, a soldier put an end to his ministry or to his misery with a sword. That was Polycarp, the bishop of the church in Smyrna. Jesus had forewarned them, you will suffer for my name. In the Gospels, even before his death, Jesus says, the world has hated me, the world will hate you. It's coming. In writing to this church, Jesus has no words of criticism or no words of condemnation. He has nothing but praise. Jesus assures them that he knows what they have already suffered. He knows the wealth they have sacrificed for faithfulness. He knows the unjust slander leveled against them by the antagonistic Jews and so many others. So Jesus then exhorts exhorts them, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil, the adversary, the slanderer, the accuser, that refers to the control of the evil one who will use minions to prosecute and convict and imprison. Jesus says you will be put in prison for 10 days and that's most likely symbolic language saying it'll be an intense yet short duration. Once again, under his control. It says be faithful to the point of death because the crown of life awaits The crown is a symbol of victory, but also of authority. You see, those who love Jesus and belong to Jesus in the life to come will reign with him. There is authority there. And then there's the promise. And the promise applies to even us today because it's whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Victory is faithfulness until death. Whoever embraces Jesus will not, will not succumb to the second death, which is the death of death. And later in Revelation, we see this scene where death and, and everything that has been opposed to God and is the remnants of, of a life and of a world in rebellion against God will be thrown into the lake of fire, done away with forever. All of the old will officially be gone and there will only be the new that God recreates. And that's the eternal final separation from God. But I want to get to a couple of points for us as we wrap up. It's pretty clear that the church in Smyrna, those people were wealthy at one point because it was a very wealthy city. Jesus says, I know your poverty. It doesn't refer to they were just, you know, I'm, I'm, you know we got, we got all, the, the, all the poor people in town to become Christians. No, it's they lost their wealth because they would not worship the emperor. They sacrificed. Their business ties dried up. Their, their, their lines of credit from, from, from banking probably were cut off as well. They became impoverished because they stood with Jesus. 
But Jesus says, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. See, richness is not about financial gain. It's not about material wealth. Richness is that life that we have that is being set free from sin, knowing we are loved, knowing that reward does await. So are you rich in the Lord? And perhaps the Lord has blessed you with some physical, material wealth in this world as well. That's fine. Just use whatever resources you have for the Lord and bringing glory to Him. But perhaps you too have had some setbacks because by following Jesus, you as a business owner will not partake in certain practices to scam or rip off or extort other people. That's okay. Jesus knows the integrity by which you run your business and you will be rewarded. Perhaps as an employee, you've lost jobs because you've had to stand firm for not padding the hours, not cutting corners, or whatever it is that your boss has asked you to do because that would be disintegrous, and you cannot live that way and represent Jesus. And if you've lost jobs, Jesus knows the stand you have taken. Nobody else may know. Nobody else will even care because you're pretty exposable or pretty expendable to them. But Jesus knows. Are you rich in the Lord? Which is completely irrelevant to worldly wealth. Are you rich in faith? And are you rich in love? Are you rich in God's grace, His mercy, His goodness to you that will help you withstand whatever may come in your life? Second of all, what are you willing to sacrifice and suffer for Jesus? We have been exceptionally protected in America and in the West for a few hundred years now. But the reality is around the world, Christians are being put to death for being Christians every single day. Africa, they're dying by the hundreds. North Korea is also executing Christians daily. There are other countries as well. The number, by the way, is increasing, not decreasing. The more we evolve, the more sophisticated we get, the more international and cosmopolitan we become. The barbaric treatment of Christians around the world escalates because they swear allegiance to Jesus, not Caesar, not the king, not the premier, not the prime minister, not the president. Jesus alone is Lord. And that statement, that confession, may someday be put to us just like it was to Polycarp. Renounce Christ and the suffering will end. Renounce Christ and live. Renounce Christ and go on your way. Renounce Christ and go get wealthy. Renounce Christ and go be, be happy live a life of pleasure. Have all your, your whims catered to and all your needs taken care of. Renounce Christ. It's like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and Satan says, all of the kingdoms of the world are before you. Deny your father and worship me 
It's all yours. Jesus told Satan to take a hike. I hope that's what we will do as well. Should it ever come to that in our land. The church in Smyrna was a church that stood strong in the face of persecution. They received the praise of Jesus. And that's the only praise that really matters. In a few moments, we're going to have communion together. We celebrate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his victory over death and the resurrection. That's what we celebrate in communion. We like to have Tay and the, the guys come back up on the stage. and.